0: With us, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of Gourney Institution and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics,
1: Dr. Justin Clark, Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Courtney Professor of Economic Education and Research, and finally, Nate Johnson,
0: my fellow producer and graduate assistant. All right. Well, it's awesome here. We got a special guest today, and uh, we're going to get into talking about guns, which sounds kind of fun. I think, Justin, you want to let us let the listeners know who we got on
2: today? Sure. So today we have the wonderful Tim Shaw, and Tim is assistant professor of philosophy and humanities at the University of Arkansas, Brantham, and Tim has written a lot about gun control the moral right to gun ownership, but he's also written a lot about things like abortion. He's written a lot about religion and very interestingly and importantly for somebody who's a philosophy professor, he's written about these things in a way that's legible to the layman. So I would invite all of you to go to Tim's website, org, where he has a lot of his writings posted. Because I think a lot of our listeners are going to like what you hear from Tim, and, and that's a great way to see what else he has written. So welcome to the show, Tim. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. Now, the reason we had Tim on today is to talk primarily about his article, The Moral Case for Gun Ownership. And it's a very interesting article, and in particular because it presents an argument for gun ownership that is a moral argument. And a lot of times we find arguments about uh, for and against gun ownership that tend to be more empirical or health-based. And I know your article takes some of that information into account, but I'm wondering if you could kind of slow walk us through the argument that you present in this article and Elsewhere for why we have a moral case for gun ownership.
3: Sure. I'll uh, give the uh, bird's eye overview of the case for gun ownership, and then we can sort of get into the the nitty-gritty here. So the argument starts off with certain basic rights that we have, the right to life, for example. Uh, the right to life is probably the most fundamental right we have. It's the precondition for arguably every other right. And without it, we wouldn't really, it wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense to say that we have any other rights. And so the right to life generates other rights that are derived from it, such as the right to self-defense. And then the right to self-defense generates the right to a means of self-defense. Self-defense is is doing something to preserve your own life. And so then the case for gun ownership hinges on guns being a reasonable means of self-defense. And I sort of explore the empirical arguments uh, for that claim. But the argument doesn't take the utilitarian point of view. Most people think of the gun control debate is sort of hinging on a balancing test uh, of consequences. So if guns increase crime, therefore, we should restrict guns or ban guns. Or if guns reduce crime, therefore, we should not have as many restrictions. And that is a useful way of thinking about it. But I think it sort of obscures the crucial nature of rights. In the philosophical literature, rights aren't something that's typically subject to a cost-benefit analysis. Rights are what Ronald Dworkin called "trumps." Rights are supposed to resist appeals to negative utility. So, the one one common thought experiment goes: You know, if you're a doctor in a hospital, and there are five people in need, of a tra- in, need, in need of a transplant, is it morally permissible for you to kill one healthy person to give his five organs to those people in need of a transplant? Well, intuitively that doesn't seem morally justifiable. Why? Because that one person's right overrides or resists appeals to the common good. And so while the focus on consequences is useful to a degree, focusing on consequences alone sort of obscures the bigger picture here. Rights are supposed to outweigh appeals to utility. The right to life, your right to life holds, even if it would be more beneficial that it be violated, for the greater good. And so if the right to life has that characteristic, so do derivative rights that are derived from that right to life, such as the right to self-defense and the right to a reasonable means of self-defense. Now, there is a common confusion in the gun control literature among people who write on this topic as philosophers. They confuse the right to self-defense versus the right to physical safety. Everyone has a right to a certain threshold of safety, you might say. But that's distinct from the right to defend yourself when you're threatened by an assailant. The right to physical safety is a right that the police provide. It's a right that society provides that, you know, keep... It's a right to keep the population in general safe to a certain degree. It's a statistical average. Whereas the right to resist an unjust attack... Is the right to fight back when your safety is violated? And some philosophers, so David De Grazia and Hugh LaFollette, for example, write and say that well, it's a matter of whether guns actually make us safer. You know, if if guns decrease average safety, then there is no right to gun ownership. But that is a crucial misunderstanding here. There is a right generally to be safe but there is also a right to fight back when that safety is violated. So we can think of the right to own a gun as a right to be our last line of defense. So long as there is a non-zero probability of wrongful victimization, there is always going to be a right to own a gun, a right to a reasonable means of self-defense, even if we can guarantee, you know, effective police protection to 99.9% certainty. There's always gonna be that chance of wrongful victimization, and the right to own a gun is the right to be your own last line of self-defense. The right to fight back. Now, so,
0: but Tim, can, uh, I just want to make sure I'm clear on that because that's very interesting. I never thought of it that way. So, if I'm hearing you right, it mm-hmm. could be that allowing guns reduces safety, but it preserves self-defense. Is that what you're saying? That that the moral claim on the self-defense because it stands alone. It's Mm -hmm. possible that empirically we find, I don't think this is true, by the way, but we find that if there's less guns, then the safety or more guns means less safe. And, but that would be okay in this moral claim. Is that
3: right? Yeah, precisely. It's possible that, you know, widespread gun ownership can increase your chance of dying in a gun accident, for example. But given that guns are, they're intrinsically fit for self-defense, they might make it much better for you to survive if you are confronted in the scenario where you have to fight for your life. So those are two two different kinds of statistics we're looking at here. There's one, the average safety, and two, the effectiveness of guns when they are used for self-defense. And on that second front, the effectiveness of guns, there's almost no uh, doubt in the literature that guns are a good way of defending yourself. And uh, intuitively, that strikes us. The start just as obvious, you know, guns are, are built for that. But there's a large, large body of data showing that guns are effective at reducing property loss, at reducing injury. They're actually safer for the victim and the assailant. Many times, the introduction of a gun into a, a situation will result in an assailant uh, breaking off the attack because the assailant doesn't want to get injured. And so, guns are very effective, more effective than. Any other means of self-defense, using your hands or feet, a knife, a baseball bat, even non-resistance, guns are more effective than any way of resisting attack.
2: So I have a question about, to go back to what you said about the right to safety, and this might be a little bit of inside baseball, and my colleagues might roll their eyes at me, but it seems like I'm 100% with you when you talk about having the right to self-defense. mm mm-hmm. Where is the right to safety supposed to come from? Because it seems like the right to self-defense surely follows from the right to life. And I, I only mentioned this right to safety thing because I think it's a lot, it's a premise that's used in a lot of like current, like lockdown arguments. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering what you think the right to safety is. It seems like you're you're kind of saying that the right to self-defense trumps the right to safety in this case. And I, I agree that it does, um, but I'm, I'm a little skeptical about this general right to safety anyway. so Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah.
3: So in the literature, philosophers who have written about this take it as a basic right. So David Degrassi talks a lot about the right to physical security in his articles against gun ownership, but he never actually states where that right comes from. He sort of takes it as a given. He cites a book by Henry Shue on basic rights. And in that book, Shue just takes it as a given. Now, My own take at deriving this right, I think you could even there's there's a a way of connecting this to the right to life. So I would divide the right to life into the positive right to life and the negative right to life. The positive right to life is is the right to be given the resources you need in order to survive. So maybe food, water, shelter, security, whereas the negative right to life is just the right to, to stay alive, the right to keep on living. And Depending on which side of the right to life you focus on, you derive either the right to self-defense or the right to physical security. The right to self-defense is derived from the right to just stay alive, to remain living. You have to have the right to to keep yourself living, and that entails the right to self-defense, whereas the right to physical security derives more from the positive right to life. But these are distinct rights, and they're, they're compatible with, with each other. We can recognize the right to physical security, at the same time, also recognize the right to self-defense. So you might think of it this way. We have a general right to physical security. We have a right to you know, a, a safe environment. But when that safe environment is violated, then the right to self-defense takes over as sort of a, a last resort of of keeping ourselves alive. And so these rights are really compatible with each other, whereas sometimes people like to put them in opposition to each other, or they wanna say that one's superior to each other.
0: I'm uh, curious with the two philosophers in here, if, if you think I'm leading my, my flock astray. So in my economics class, I spent some time talking about rights, but, and I like to just characterize it as you've got the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so to me, this is falling under the liberty part, And I think that's the one that people gloss over too quickly. What does it mean to have liberty and its freedom to do whatever you want to do as long as you're not violating the identical rights of somebody else? And so I kind of think that's a little bit in the safety thing, right? If there's the safety in the sense that you have the right to do whatever you want to do, that there's not somebody lurking right around the corner, maybe that's going to keep you from doing what you want to do as long as you're not harming somebody else.
3: Is that fair to put that into that liberty category? If by liberty you mean just not having someone tell you what to do or, you know, non-interference, I I think there's a difference here. So the right to safety is the right to be given something. So police protection or, I don't know, an alarm system in your house, uh, it's the right for someone else to give a resource to you, to make your environment safer. So it's like, it, it derives from the positive right to life, which is the right to be given food, water, shelter. It's not the right to non-interference, which is just, hey, hands off, don't do anything, just let me do whatever I want to do within a reasonable sphere of, within the reasonable domain of my, you know, little bubble here. So I, I think it's not derived in that way. It's not, it's not just a right of non-interference. It's the right to be given or guarantee a certain level of security.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. I wanted to uh, ask you to clarify one thing, and I think it's something that Russ brought up earlier too, but it was in your presentation about guns and the right to self-defense overriding the general right to safety. And you said that a lot of these arguments try to show that since gun ownership can reduce safety, or from like a utilitarian standpoint, that guns might not be a utilitarian, you know, optimal in the utilitarian sense, the right to self-defense would still override the right to safety or would still um, override the utilitarian argument. But I also take it that what you were saying, and I think you say this in the paper, is that these utilitarian arguments are on, are false by their own calculation. Um, So is it true that you also think in addition to the fact that even if the utilitarian argument worked, your moral argument would override it, that you still think that the utilitarian argument doesn't work and that we are actually still collectively safer with guns. Am I reading you right there? Yeah. So a note about that paper that you're mentioning.
3: So I wrote that for a a book that's sort of a a debate book on left-right issues. There is a Deeper argument that I sketch in some of my other writings that is a bit more sophisticated. So, if any listeners are interested, I've, I've written quite a few papers on this topic. I direct you to some of the more recent writings that I have. Uh, but in that paper, I do say that even if you assume the cost benefit analysis approach, the utilitarian approach, it's not at all clear that the harms outweigh the benefits. It, it seems, according to our best available data, that guns are used in self-defense many times more than they are used for criminal purposes each year, and that guns have a strong deterrent effect on criminal behavior. And so putting all these points together, there's a, there's a bunch of studies that I could go over here, but uh, putting all these points together, it seems not at all obvious that there's, a, uh, there's more harms than benefits. In, in fact, it seems as if there's more, there's more benefits than harms here. Uh, and that from a purely utilitarian point of view, we might want to loosen restrictions on gun ownership because guns are socially beneficial.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, this is great. Uh, Looks like a good time for a break. Uh, When we come back, I want to weave in a little faith component, thinking about guns and (laughs) guns and faith. And and also, I want to uh, pick your brain on Australia. It seems like they've been extreme on a few cases and maybe look at some other places around the world with uh, varying types of gun restrictions. So we'll be back in just a bit.
2: Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps people find us. We'd like to do a mailbag episode, so please send your questions to gortney.institute at gmail.com. The Gourtney Institute at Ottawa University
0: is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom, justice, and its impact on human flourishing. Faith and economics in action. The Word Institute is calling all moms and dads of high school juniors and seniors. Uh, we have a couple events coming up where you and your high school junior senior, maybe it's a, a mom, son, maybe it's a father, son, maybe it's a dad, daughter, whatever your combination. Come to Ottawa University. We're going to do a book club on Bitcoin. So if you're interested in learning about Bitcoin, Dr. Clark's going to lead a discussion group on that. And then Dr. Uh, Peter Jacobson is going to be talking about inflation. Inflation is affecting us all right now, and it's a hot topic. So come and join us for that. Look for details on how you can sign up and join in here in the upcoming weeks.
2: Don't forget to check out our show notes where you'll find a timeline and other information about the podcast that will be helpful. You can find that at anchor Economics.
0: All right, welcome back. Well, we, I said we wanted to get into a little bit of faith discussion, and we got a couple of different areas we want to cover. I'm just going to start with you, Tim. Um, I was wondering, to what degree does your you know, research and interests flow from your personal faith life and beliefs?
3: That's a good question. So I actually started sort of exploring just topics in philosophy through apologetics. Uh, in middle school, mm-hmm. I was confronted by some really challenging questions. And I started reading Christian apologetics. So, you know, Lee Strobel, Norman Geisler, and then I started working my way up. And eventually, I discovered that if I wanted to get more information, if I, if I wanted to, to go as deep as I could, then I had to study philosophy. And so that sort of took me down this path of studying philosophy in college. And it sort of directed the, the direction of my research, I Published mainly on really controversial topics that Christians generally adhere to and which I think deserve a defense, an academic level defense.
0: Yeah. What uh, denomination, Christian denomination are you?
3: So I'm part of the Churches of Christ. I go to South Point Church of Christ in Kansas City, Missouri.
0: Okay. Well, great. Well, I was a born and raised Catholic that defected to the Lutheran Church following Luther's tradition of of not liking everything with the Catholic Church. So, anyway, <laughs> we've got a variety of faith traditions that uh, that we have on the podcast as well as uh, here in the room. So it's it's great to get that background. Peter, you had something on
1: some of his work? Yeah. Well, I generally consider myself to be, if anything, just an evangelical Christian and i kind of raised an eyebrow when i looked through your cv and saw this uh publication in evangelical quarterly that you have and the publication title is did luke endorse armed self-defense in luke 22 36. and so i wanted to get your take i i, I kind of want to ask a lot in this question so we have luke twenty two thirty six 36 where jesus instructs all the disciples to go and buy swords and have swords but we have other places in the bible like 1 Peter has a little bit of this that calls Christians to endure suffering, even if it's unfair. Or we have the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is talking about turning the other cheek. How do we as Christians kind of navigate those verses that on some level appear to have tension? All right, that's
3: a great question. Where do I even begin? <laughs> so the context of Luke twenty-two thirty-six, 36, uh, Jesus is... The it's the last supper and he's telling his disciples, remember when, you know, during my earthly ministry, I sent you out. You didn't have to worry about provisions. You didn't have to worry about the place to stay. You didn't have to worry about all these things to be provided to you. Well, a time is coming where the special providence you enjoyed won't be there for much longer. And so the context of that whole chapter is a call to self-reliance. And he includes, Buying a sword there uh, as a means of protection. And I think that's particularly instructive that he mentioned the, alongside the money bag and knapsack. So many people will look at that passage and they'll say, well, the the mention the, the mention of buying a sword, that's just so that the disciples can look like transgressors or criminals, and so that Jesus can be portrayed as a criminal by the Roman authorities. One, that interpretation doesn't work because that's not actually how Jesus is convicted. Second, the lumping of the sword in with the money bag and knapsack means that there was a more broader context here of just general self-reliance. Now, there are other verses in the uh, New Testament, which many people cite in support of, of pacifism. So, for example, the, the Sermon on the Mount. I think the proper context of that verse is saying that, you know, if you have a bruised ego, don't have a desire to get even. It's, it's mm-hmm. more of a saying that we shouldn't respond to an insult. But that's not the same thing as protecting your life. It's not the same thing as resisting mm-hmm. an unjust attack. Note that when Peter draws a sword to cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, Jesus does not say, get, a, get, a, get rid of your sword. He does say, put your sword back in its place. And he rebukes Peter's use of the sword for trying to interfere with God's mission, Uh not so much with using the sword itself. If the goal was to rebuke the sword, Jesus would have made that clear. But instead he said, put the sword back in its place. He had a pretty uh, convenient opportunity to rebuke the use of the sword as the sword if he wanted to. And yet that omission is particularly interesting, especially given that, Several verses prior to that, Jesus tells the disciples to buy a sword. So it would be strange that Jesus would rebuke the disciples about something he commanded them to do. It seems like anti-gun
0: advocates would just say, see, in the Bible, they talk about the sword. So obviously guns shouldn't be used, only swords and knives. And we've never tried to ban those.
3: (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I I suspect that, you know, (laughs) if there were guns around back then, (laughs) things might have been different. Justin, you wanted
0: to uh, uh, pick his brain on some conceal and carry type questions?
3: Oh,
2: yeah. I a, well, I have a couple of questions on, on this front. So um, it's all well and good to argue abstractly and, you know, in the journals about whether or not we do or don't have uh, the right to a gun ownership. But one of the things that I think is interesting about uh, you, Tim, is that you actually kind of live it. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about your background with guns and how those factor maybe into your everyday life.
3: Yeah, so guns have been not just an academic interest, but also a personal interest. I remember turning 18, my dad took me to shoot a gun for the first time. He said, you know, you're a man now, got to learn how to shoot a gun. I was not very good at it. My first semester or my second semester in college as an undergraduate, I uh, got a part-time job as a research assistant to one of my professors, and that job came with a really small stipend. And of course, being an 18-year-old college student with no financial responsibility, I used that stipend to buy a, a shotgun as soon as I could. <laughs> that was my first ever gun, and it's turned into sort of a addiction ever since. But by writing on this topic, I got more interested in the, you know, the actual gun gun culture, the the gun community. And so over the years, I've started taking some shooting classes. And now I'm at the point where I actually am licensed and certified to teach concealed carry in the state of Kansas. And I also have certifications through Missouri Peace Officer Standards and Training as a master handgun instructor, a patrol rifle instructor, and off-duty tactics instructor. And so I've got about 80 to hundred hours of post-level firearms training. And every now and then I'll teach a concealed carry class, not something that I do regularly, but I, I like sort of talking to people about guns. I like writing about guns. I like shooting guns. And so it's become sort of uh, something that I actually, I do in my personal life. I, I will occasionally go out uh, and just, you know, go to the range spend about 100, 200 rounds of ammo just to you know, keep, keep my skills up to date because shooting a gun is a perishable skill. And so if I'm going to carry a gun, I better know how to shoot it and I better be good at doing it and I better practice at it. And so it's something that for me is actually really fun. Well,
0: one, one thing that uh, <clears throat> just, I guess, concerned me at first was I don't remember how many years back, but you bring up your teaching some conceal and carry classes In the great state of Kansas, those aren't even needed, are they? Anybody can stick a gun in a purse or the back pocket or their truck um, without having ever fired a gun even, right? No blessing from the government?
3: Yeah. So in Kansas and other states like Missouri, Oklahoma, uh, each year about a state or two is added to this list. But many states are becoming what are called constitutional carry states where you don't actually need a kind, any kind of special license to carry a concealed weapon either i guess either concealed or openly now generally i think it's a good idea to get training uh, to know how to use your gun but these are no longer uh, training is no longer a legal requirement in a good number of states either to own or to carry a gun now i will say getting a a permit which kansas does still offer even though it's now abolished that requirement kansas does still offer a permit And that permit's very useful if you're traveling to other states that aren't like Kansas. So if I travel to Florida, my home state, my permit's valid there and I can carry concealed in the state of Florida. And so uh, from a pragmatic point of view, it's useful to get a a concealed carry permit or license if you're traveling, because most states will recognize, unless it's like California or New York.
2: Would the argument against mandating training and permits be something like, well the poorest people who live in the most violent neighborhoods ought to be able to be able to protect themselves without the additional cost of this licensure. Yeah, I, I think that's something
3: uh, weighing in favor of that. Uh, perhaps the solution is just to reduce the cost or reduce the fee associated with it. I'm I'm sympathetic toward one kind of argument against background checks or licensing requirements. The argument goes like this. So we all have a prima facie right to own a gun and it's up to the government to show that we don't have this sort this right overwritten or defeated for some specific person and so the government can't just assume everyone is not qualified to have this right or everyone doesn't have this right as a de facto kind of position and so i'm i'm sympathetic to arguments that Maybe we shouldn't have a training requirement or a a background check requirement because that puts the onus on the individual to show that they actually have or are qualified to exercise this right. Whereas if we do have a prima facie right to own a gun, it would be the government's job to disqualify us. So something like, and there's we can get into the nitty gritty of this, there's two different kinds of concealed carry licensing. There's what's called shall issue, and may issue. Shall issue basically says, look, if you meet the list of objective criteria, the the government can't deny you a license. Whereas may issue says that, look, if you meet a list of criteria, that's fine. But ultimately, a judge or the sheriff or police chief, somebody has to determine that you have good cause for a license. And, And if they determine you don't have good cause, they'll shoot down your application. The argument that I just gave would definitely rule out may issue, shall issue, depending on how it's it's set up, might survive that, uh, that argument because it doesn't depend on the government subjecting you to a special
2: need or demonstrating your need to own a gun. I have one more practical question, which is, suppose somebody says, well, I agree with you about this moral right to own a gun, but... A gun, not any gun, and these AR-15s—you know, assault rifle 15s—that just look really scary. Okay. Why? Why should those be permitted? Who needs an AR-15? We- weapons of war. Yeah, the weapons, the weapons of war on our streets. So, what's your, what's the, um, what's your response to that line of um, objection?
3: Yeah. So, a number of points. Uh, if you just look at the raw data. More people are killed by handguns than they are by rifles of any kind. So if you're just going to go strict off, strictly off the numbers, then AR-15s, as scary as they might look, don't <laughs> actually do a lot in terms of crimes. Second, and this is an argument that I gesture towards in the the paper that you mentioned, we can think of AR-15s or other kinds of quote unquote heavier weaponry as sort of a means of self-defense along a different kind of uh, uh, spectrum. So there's there's self-defense against criminals, yes, but there's also self-defense against rogue states or against an unjust government. And you can think of armed citizenry as sort of raising the cost of a government going going bad. When governments go bad, they typically go very, very, very bad as as, uh, what we know from the 20th century tells us. And so while an armed citizenry doesn't guarantee that a government won't go bad, it does provide a kind of insurance against that. It's like you know, wearing a seatbelt. Wearing a seatbelt doesn't mean that you won't get injured in a car accident, but it does sort of mitigate that the risk of of injury when a car accident does happen. So you can think of AR-15s, perhaps a select fire weapon or a machine gun as a step up, maybe not in the defense against criminals, but a in the defense against a rogue state, and that's how actually, if you look at uh, you know the Second Amendment, many of the founders conceived of it as a way of providing a bulwark against an unjust government. But even if you just look at things at you know the, the level of defending against a criminal, AR-15s have been used very effectively, especially against groups of criminals. Um, you know, if you have a, a gang, or you know, if there's a riot where you're living. I would pref- I would definitely prefer an AR-15 over a handgun just because it holds more ammunition, it has a greater range, you know, it's more intimidating. And so maybe a handgun is valuable in you know one-on-one or maybe one on two situations, but you know, with all the unrest going on, you know, all the all these riots and and you know, gang violence, it's not completely unreasonable to have an AR-15 in your closet against a group of people who might try to gain entry to your house in the middle of the night. So on both fronts, it's completely reasonable. I'd say.
0: I I want you to speak on the militarization of the police. So we've been talking more about the consumer and households having weapons and the degree to the type of weaponry. Do you have any thoughts on whether uh, police should be limited in the type of uh, weapons they have or should they have carte blanche with anything? Um, and that this goes potentially beyond guns. Uh, any thoughts on that with the police con- uh, that's been issues in small towns and the, they're driving tanks? And uh, there's been some we've, we've done some other uh, podcasts on that. I'm
3: curious your thoughts there. Yeah, so there's there's two ways to look at police militarization. One is from the standpoint of just equipment after the war in Iraq there was a lot of surplus military equipment that the government decided to either give away or sell to police departments at a really, really cheap price. So, uh, for example, the Lenko Bearcat, which is an armored car that many police departments have, uh, I believe there was a special program available to the government where a police department could receive one of these Lenco Bearcats. And so even really small police departments were getting these for either free or, or a heavily discounted price. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at police militarization is in terms of tactics. Police officers, uh, SWAT operators are increasingly dressing more like soldiers. They're adopting tactics that are used in the military, which is not entirely a bad thing, but tactics and mindset sort of go together. And it might sort of, some, some people have written about how it turns the police from a organization that's more minded toward your community minded you know your your picture of the speed cop walking down the street into more of a paramilitary organization or an organization that's quasi-military quasi-community police and some have argued that that minds that change in mindset which also sometimes comes in the change of equipment because if you get uh, a really fancy military vehicle you're probably going to want to use it and so some police departments have been using Lenko Bearcats or these armored cars and really in situations where they're not needed, just as a a way of force projection. My own take about this, is that there's nothing inherently wrong with giving these kinds of equipment to uh, police officers and police departments. My concern, though, is that these equipment, uh, these equipment uh, and weapons are being used in ways that are unnecessary, in ways that don't improve the public image of police officers, whether you, you know, and and sometimes it's just motivated out of uh, ignorance, but people aren't exactly uh, they don't exactly feel calm when they see police officers dressed as soldiers carrying, say, something that looks like a grenade launcher or driving something that looks close to like a Bradley fighting vehicle. That's that's unnerving. Now, again, in principle, I don't I don't see an issue with that. My concern is with how it's it's played out. You know, in a specific circumstance. I think there are situations where. A police department might need an armored car or a police department might need, you know, a select fire weapon. I think, however, that if police police departments are going to use that kind of those kinds of weapons and tactics, it should be very uh, limited and very restricted just because of the kind of distrust it breeds.
0: Yeah, this looks like a good place to wrap up. Uh, We certainly want you back. There's a number of things, listeners, that we have on the list that we want to hit with Tim. And uh, we talked about his proximity to Ottawa University and have him come in person. So um, we look forward to having you on a future podcast to talk uh, more about some of these issues, but also some of the other things you write about. So thanks
3: for being on today, Tim. Thanks for inviting me. It was a pleasure.
2: Any last words from you, too? No, thank you, Tim. It was uh, an absolute pleasure having you on, and I really look forward to some future conversations. Yeah, Yeah, we'll we'll
1: set up something real soon. I just wanted to remind listeners if you want to find uh, Tim, just mentioned at the beginning, but again, it's. Timshao.org. That's T-I-M-H-S-I-A-O.org. All right. We'll have that in the
0: show notes as well. Well, this has been a production of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. A five-star rating helps other people find us and make sure to forward our podcast off to your friends. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.